Revelation 1, 1 through 8, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. To him who loves us and has set us free from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, thanks, Olivia. Uh, Olivia is uh, crushing it in children's ministry, and I was like, she, did she make it in the room? She made it in the room, and I didn't see her, so that was my apologies for that weird transition. Uh, anyway, let's pray, and then we'll, uh, we'll jump into that, that text. Uh, Father, we, we want you to speak uh, into, into our lives, and yeah, God, to make yourself known to us. And I know I, it's been a rush morning, just kind of getting back into the rhythm of, of setting up and tearing down in church. And so no, I sense my own spirit just being rushed in this moment. And so, God, I know that for many of us, that's how we live most of our lives, just rushed, hurried. And so in this moment, God, just slow us, slow us down to hear from you. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I will not forget one of the, the first times one of my close friends declared that he was no longer a Christian. The last time I had spoken to him, he was studying to be a pastor. Uh, we'd become close in high school that uh, our high school student ministries had like small groups we, we did, and uh, there was no one in his class, even though we were a pretty large church, there was no one in his class that could be in a small group with him, so they put him with us who were two years older than him, which typically would mean, like anytime a, a freshman boy is paired with junior boys, typically that's just going to mean we're going to make fun of you ruthlessly. Uh, and I'm pretty sure we did, but he stuck with us, and we became really close, and we're uh, a small group together for, for two years, and, and over time, he decided he wanted to be a pastor, I wanted to be a pastor as well, so we sort of had this connection um, together, but then a few years into my college experience and early into his college experience, he decided that Christianity wasn't for him anymore, and I was stunned by that. And I'm assuming all of you in this room have similar stories. People you love, people you were close to, maybe it's, that's you. You're not sure that this is something you believe anymore. And that story became the first of many of my friends who I grew up in church with, later seeing them leave Christianity for another way of life. So this morning we're beginning a series that is not so subtly titled A Church for the End of the World. Um, the title's, you know, it's a little over the top. Okay, it's like really over the top. We, we know that. We're acknowledging that. And yet, like when I look at the, the landscape of Christianity in the U.S., I think a lot of Christians feel that way. My friend's story is actually, it's not unique. It's actually becoming very, very common. And something that, that our, our society, especially sociologists, are beginning, are beginning to grapple with is 
the incredible rise of the religious nuns in our culture. And I'm not talking about the Mother Teresa nuns, the N-U-N-S. I'm talking about the religious N-O-N-E-S nuns, those who have no religious affiliation. Um, take a look at the chart uh, behind me. I, I sort of, I try to do my best with this black line. That's the, lo- the rise of religious nuns over the last 20 years. That for most of American history, those who have had no religious affiliation were at about 8% of our society. Today, in just 20 years, that's gone from 8 to, to 23%. And you will, if, if you were to go into that chart uh, into depth, what would you f- would find is that that decrease or increase of religious nuns is matched almost precisely with the decrease of those who would refer to themselves as Christians. 15% of our society in the last 20 years has moved from associating themselves with the way of Jesus to having no religious affiliation. And so what's happening? What does all this mean? And most important, what kind of church is required in a moment like this? Is the church going to just continuously decline and more and more religious nuns increase in our society? How do I, how do I raise my kids in a society like this? So about a year ago, I was tasked with creating a sermon series around the entire book of Revelation and And I got through the first three chapters, and I just couldn't go past them. That I was was struck as if Jesus in these three chapters is speaking directly to the church in our moment, in our day. And so we're not ready to do a full series on Revelation as a church. So let's be honest, what church is ready to do a full series on the book of Revelation? Um, And so we're we're just going to start with three chapters. We're going to do our our next nine weeks together are on three chapters of Revelation. And what I want to do this morning is just, I have a two-point sermon that's every bit as long as a three-point sermon. <laughs> Probably longer, if I'm honest with you. Uh, and here's what, point one, I just want to unpack how I understand what's happening. And then point two is just the first eight verses of Re- Revelation 1, what I think Jesus is saying in this moment to us. So point one, uh, our problem the problem we're encountering, our problem is, is progress. And 500 years ago or so, a Catholic priest in Italy, whose name I will not even try to pronounce for you because it will just make me look ridiculous, but he found, uh, he was sort of a book nerd and he was always on the lookout for uh, books and he found a book that had once like deeply shaped Greco-Roman society but had been long forgotten. And this priest himself was, was beginning to lose his own faith in God and Christianity. And so this book became uh, sort of central to him. And the book he found, it was a book by a man named Lucretius called On the Nature of Things. And Stephen Greenblatt, an author who wrote a book called The Swerve that won the Pulitzer Prize in 2012, he argues that the discovery of this book altered the, the, the course of history of the West. Because what, uh, so you don't need to know this book, you don't need to study this book, but this book, On the Nature of Things, basically had two core arguments. Argument one, is there a God or are there gods? Probably not. It's argument one. There's probably not gods. There's probably not supernatural beings anywhere. So therefore, uh, his second argument was, so build your life around pleasure. Pleasurable experiences. There probably aren't any gods, so don't worry about that. Instead, Design and build your life around happiness and pleasure. And Greenblatt uh, Greenblatt said this idea that life is about your own personal pursuit of pleasure and happiness 
began to take root in the West and and essentially fueled the Renaissance, which caused people to, to then begin looking at Christianity as a hindrance to human progress and pleasure. The church stood in the way of human beings discovering what would make them happy, discovering a truly good society. Human progress has to begin to to get rid of religion to reach its full potential. So human progress, potential, that could deliver happiness, but Christianity is only going to be in the way of that. And even though when the priest made this discovery in this moment, he was vastly outnumbered today, the reverse is true. And if you're in Christianity, you are in the minority. Because today we have enormous confidence in ourselves and human progress. And to some extent we should. Like technological progresses that we get to experience and taste every day of our life have, have led to amazing developments. We can access anything, anywhere, at any time with the device in our pockets. It's accessible to almost every human being. It's affordable. We're filled with confidence that we can make a better future for ourselves, that we are not limited in any meaningful way, that we can create a society that can lead to the happiness of all people, a utopian kingdom, if human progress can just let it, ha- let it have its, its way. This is going to all be summed up by the phrase you probably hear a lot, and we'll hear certainly a lot uh, in the coming election year, the right side of history. You want to be on the right side of history. Right? The future is headed to this amazing place, so don't be on the wrong side of that. And the reality is Christianity, with its traditional views, is most assuredly on the wrong side of history. And so this, this, this sort of this narrative, the secular progressive narrative, has salvation on offer to us just like Christianity. And it has sin that it diagnoses in us just like Christianity. And Dad McAdams in his book, The, the, Righteous, uh, the Redemptive Self, he says that like Christianity, this secular narrative of human progress tells us both what's wrong with the world and what can be made right in us. And here's what he says, the way it sort of inverts the way Christianity view salvation, that first, what is wrong with this world now is not sin so much as sin is, is now defined as anything that, that makes me unhappy. What's wrong with this world is anything that gets in the way of my human happiness, pleasure, joy, which means, therefore, pain is to be avoided at all costs. So we avoid commitments, especially externally given commitments, especially a God who might make demands of our lives that we would never make of ourselves. We either avoid commitments altogether, or we have no problem sending a text message to someone backing out of a commitment we've made to them. And this is one reason why religion is breaking down today. Religion, if it is anything, Christianity, if it is anything, is an external commitment to a God telling you exactly how to live, what to believe, what to practice, and that will certainly introduce unhappiness into your life. And if that's the one thing wrong with the world is unhappiness, then we have a big problem with God. So McAdam says that sin is now anything that makes you unhappy. Avoid anything that makes you unhappy. And salvation, therefore, is pleasure, is happiness. It's about discovering your inner self and expressing it to the world. Salvation is about you and your own happiness and your own experiences in life. And so in this reality, Pastor Mark Sayers, he, uh, he says this. He says, holiness is now fleeing from commitment. In this new, this new scheme of salvation, holiness is now fleeing from commitments to your family, to your history, to your community. 
It's, re- it's fleeing restrictions on autonomy. Right? I get to do what I want, and no one will tell me anything else. And it is fleeing from externally given identities. I will decide for myself who I am. No one else. And that's the water we now swim in, is this, this the scheme of salvation. Sin is unhappiness, and salvation is pleasure. And it should not surprise us that a church whose central message from our Savior, Jesus, is do, deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow me. That does not land in our current cultural moment. And yet, I want to be clear, I don't think anything of what I just said has very little, if anything, to do at all with why so many people are leaving Christianity. You say, why did you just waste my time uh, with all? Well, some of it's to help you understand, but, but here's what you need to understand. Like Revelation 1, the church in which we're going to be looking at, these seven churches, what Jesus is saying to these seven churches, they lived in a culture that believed all of that stuff. Which is why, if you were to go to Washington, D.C., our buildings are modeled off of, off, off of a Greco-Roman culture. The Greco-Roman culture was the pursuit of happiness and the avoidance of pain. And yet in that culture, Christianity exploded in growth. Took over the world in, in no time. Went from a few disciples in an upper room, terrified because their leader had just been killed by the state power of the day, to a worldwide, 60 years later, a worldwide movement where we will read letters from Jesus to a church all over the world. The problem for Christianity today is not our culture. It's not the pressures we face outside of our, our church. Our problem is not that our culture has bought into this human progress salvation narrative. It's that the church bought it. We bought this progressive salvation narrative and we traded the gospel in for it in two ways. First, some churches just abandoned orthodox theology because of the pressures put on it. If there, <clears throat> excuse me, if there was a difficult doctrine that pushed against progress, the church just abandoned it. Right? The resurrection, the doctrine of hell. The idea of of marriage between a male and a female, the idea of of gender, of men and women being different in a unique and beautiful way. Some churches just jumped full in with the stream that salvation is your own happiness, and therefore anything in the Bible that might restrict that, we'll just not read it. We'll just not listen to it. We'll just, we'll cut it out. And so if anything scriptural challenged the progressive narrative or ethos of our day, the scripture lost And churches began to assume that we had progressed beyond Jesus and his words and his teaching and his life. And we left him behind to embrace a new future. And the result of that is is most of those churches are what has hemorrhaged most of the Christians in the last few years. And I always think on my drive to, to Trader Joe's, anytime I make that holy pilgrimage from my house to the Trader Joe's in Missouri, I drive by three empty church buildings all part of denominations who decided Jesus or a progressive narrative culture, we choose this. And those churches are gone. And here's the thing, and because listen, all of you have the same pressure today, and, and, and I'm very aware of it. And, and I would say this move to, to trust a culture that, that would say human progress is salvation, we can lead to our own happiness, that's never made sense to me. Because even though as a society, like we've made enormous technological advances. That's in question, right? The medical technologies today available to us are deeply meaningful to my own family and story. You think of, of what smartphones enable us to do, the many things we can do with them. Smart TVs, self-driving cars, 
We've even made enormous technological progress, but we, have we made like progress in virtue? Are we like a, a healthier, more mature, emotionally, relationally, socially progressed culture? Edwin Friedman, a, a psychologist, he wasn't a Christian, he was a Jewish man. He, uh, he wrote one of the most well-known books on leadership, which was called Failure of Nerve. I'll talk more about it next week. But his basic argument in that, in that book, which he wrote in, in, in 1997, before this mass exodus from religion, he made the case that while the West is progressing technologically, we're wealthier than we've ever been, we uh, have incredible advances, he saying, as a psychologist, our culture is regressing in social and emotional health. And the things he was pointing to 22, 20 years ago, sociologists are now trying to wrestle with in that even though we are the richest, most technologically advanced culture ever, we are also the most anxious, lonely, and despairing culture on record. 39% of Americans say they're more anxious than they were a year ago, just a year ago. We have the best medical technology imaginable, but the life expectancy in the U.S. for the last couple of years is actually decreasing from deaths of despair. Either drug addiction and the hopelessness that comes from that or suicides from within certain communities. Even though we're healthier and have more access to, to medical advances, we are dying earlier. But today, you can have $4, $4 pour-over designer coffee, endless entertainment on your Netflix queue. Your smartphone can do just about anything you imagine, but we are lonelier, angrier, and more anxious than we've ever been. And this is why when someone looks at me, he's like, you know, Tim, like, get with the times. Leave behind things Jesus has said, which don't mesh with our own culture um, in this day. The progress that human beings have, have produced. And it's like, is, you want me to take my cues from this place? I mean, get on Twitter for like two minutes, and I, I'll take Jesus. I look at the political narratives and the conversation around that and our style. I will take Jesus. And all his offense and all his... Direction. And listen, here's the thing. I'm guessing at this point, most of you in this room probably agree with all of this point. I don't need to linger here too much in terms of those churches that embraced uh, unorthodox theology and they died for it. Because that's not the only church that bought the secular myth gospel. Churches that had good theology also bought it. In 2005, Christian Smith, he released a landmark book he uh, titled Soul Searching. It was essentially the most extensive work on religion done in history. And, and what it was, was they looked at thousands of teenagers across the U.S., um, which I would have been a teenager, a part of, it's like it's exactly in my time of, of growing up. And what he did was he summarized what churches in the U.S. believe, especially evangelical churches, those with more conservative theology, what they believed and taught their kids. And here were... Um, two of the central findings of his book. Remembering a second ago, I just said, the progressive salvation narratives, narrative is avoid pain and pursue happiness and pleasure. And Christian Smith said, this is what American teenagers believe about Christianity. First, the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. Second, God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when God is needed to solve a problem. There is no difference in that theology than the secular narrative of pursue happiness. Pursue your own vision of happiness. And maybe God might need to get involved at some point into that to help you be happy, but that's, that's the extent of his role, is to affirm your own individual pursuits 
of happiness. And in case you think, well, that was 2005, it's 14 years later. The, one, of the most, one of the best-selling Christian books out today, published by a self-professed Christian in a Christian publishing house, this is the central argument of that book. You and you only are ultimately responsible for what you become and how happy you are. The most popular book within Christianity today, central message is you and only you are ultimately responsible for who you become and how happy you are. We've come a long way from Jesus, who said, if you want to save your life, you will destroy it. If you live for yourself, you will destroy it. But if you give up your life to me, you will find it. Somewhere along the way, we we got lost, church. And the church became a place to sell products for people's individual pursuit of happiness. The church was no longer a place to deny yourself, to serve a community, to do everything you could to get the, the word and the message of Jesus out into the world. And instead became a place that was just like the world. Instead of people who who followed Jesus and were radically different, we were just one more place to find your own individual happiness. The church became spiritual Walmart. Spiritual products for the lowest possible cost. Ministries, programs, religious goods and services to provide to consumers and customers. And when the church fails to provide that product, you find the better business down the street or church. I remember one moment early in my ministry and a mentor of mine until this comment looked at me and said, essentially, Tim, people pay the church for us to do the ministry for them. That's why you're a pastor. They pay you so that they don't have to do it. And I just, I was, that was, this was a pastor in a well-respected position, an important position, and he totally missed it. Totally missed the point of Jesus' mission in this world. And yet... Now, let me say one more thing first. So even though churches' attendance are dropping at alarming rates, we still see giant church buildings all around us. Churches that offer the best products at the lowest personal cost to people, they continue to grow. Because come, drop your kids off. We won't make you engage them. We will provide for you. Just give us your tithe. We'll, we'll do it. And yet, I want to be really clear. This is not, don't hear this as, as a critique your direction. This is... This is the fault of pastors. This is my fault. As one tasked with with starting a new congregation five years ago, I've fallen into the same patterns. I've been more concerned about a building than cultivating the presence of, of prayer in Jesus in this place. I've been more concerned about providing as many ministries as possible to you to keep people here than creating a church culture that is most concerned with creating a radically different follower of Jesus in the world. And I'm not saying good ministries and programs aren't important. They are, they are incredibly important. But what fuels a church is the presence of Jesus. What makes a church a church is wholehearted, sacrificial, self-denial pursuit of the presence of Jesus. A costly pursuit and discipleship, which ironically makes you far happier than the shallow pursuits this culture is marked by. And that's why we're not ready for a full series on Revelation yet. I get to these first three chapters, and I just sense 
Jesus saying to me, Tim, we have some things we need to talk about. And that our problem in this moment as a church is not that there's this evil culture getting at us. And so we've abandoned Jesus and his mission and what he wants a church to be, to be a spiritual Walmart for, for this world. And my friend, we grew up in a church just like that, that had all the goods and services, all the programs, killer student ministry, awesome worship, best lighting and sound system in Indianapolis, I was told actually by, by our worship. We had it all. And as I think about my student ministry experience growing up, most of the kids I know are not Christians anymore. It didn't work. And so may we not repeat the errors. And I also want to be, it can, I think it can be really easy to say, well, that's, you're a 36-year-old just critiquing your elders. And, and to some extent, that's true. But also, I want you to hear, there's some repentance here in my own heart, in my own life, in my own leadership, in my own ministry, and what it means to be a pastor. Because at the, at the heart of the, the matter is our problem is progress and confidence in ourselves, that we don't need the presence of Jesus because we can figure it out ourselves. And I've been as guilty of that as anyone. So if our problem is progress, our hope is, is his presence, is the presence of Jesus. And now, Revelation. It's, like, it's already strange. It's going to get stranger. <clears throat> but we're not going to get to most of the strangest, uh, strangeness in this series. Because this series, we're going to stay on three chapters, which is just Jesus speaking to seven churches that have been planted and started around Asia that are in very different places and yet feel all of the same cultural pressures we do. The Revelation was probably written around 95 AD, and the early church was facing enormous pressures, pressures to abandon their core Christian beliefs. We'll talk about that. Pressure to get with the time, stop being so regressive. We'll talk about that. Some churches were facing Certain death from members of their congregation from persecution. We'll talk about that. And some churches were just living life on autopilot and they, they had become so self-confident. Jesus was literally on the outside knocking at the door asking, can I come back into my church? This is a lot going on in this moment. The church had exploded in growth in 60 years. It was continuing to grow even during this time. But you sense there's this moment of, of where, what happens next. And Jesus comes in one last time in Revelation to say, this is my last word before I come back for good. And I'm going to lay out to you the things to come, but I'm going to speak to my church one last time before I come back so that you have all the resources you need to go and be my witnesses to the end of the earth. So Jesus speaks up, and he, or shows up, and he speaks to John. And John, who had been exiled to prison, the island of Patmos, so the Roman society again thinking, we'll just put this guy on an island by himself. He can't do any trouble there. And Jesus is like, I actually can get to that island, and I can give him a vision, and he can write a letter, and I can get to the, the whole world, the church, and that's what happens. And so Jesus shows up. He speaks to John in order to speak to his church, which is, is how the book starts. So as confusing as Revelation is, just part of why it's important to, to understand the first eight verses is they set the tone for the whole thing. All right, so what is this book about? Well, this is what this book is about. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's the revealing of Jesus, which God gave him to show his servants, the church, the things that must soon take place. This is the revelation of, of Jesus. And so whatever Revelation is, it's a book about Jesus and how he wants us to live 
and the things that, sh- that soon must take place. And that's going to be another sermon series another time, the things that must soon take place. Now is what, is what is Jesus revealing about himself and us that we need to hear? And I think the key thing I want to focus in on this morning, you know, part one, all the problems, part two, the, the, our message of hope is verse six, or verses five and six, actually. It says, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. So in other words, Jesus says that we as a church are a kingdom of priests. Which is, what's that? Well, priests, uh, they represent and inhabit and live in the presence of God so that they can offer it to others. If you want to meet with God, you go through a priest. And so we now, as individual Christians, we are the presence of God. That is our core mission to this world. A priest attests to the presence of God and offers the presence of God. And what fills me with hope about this moment, why I don't freak out about charts like that, is we, the thing that like drives the church, the presence of Jesus, we have that as available to us as we ever have. The only question is, like, do we want that presence or do we want to stick with our progress, to stick with our own human capacities and gifts and skills? Or do we want to live by the presence of Jesus? And so ultimately what, what this whole series is about is it's about what does it mean for us to be a church who live in the presence of Jesus, who offer the presence of Jesus to this world, who listen to and are attentive to God first and foremost. And so give me some time to do that, right? Like this is, you know, it's... I. There's, it's eight or nine weeks, okay? So don't, like, you didn't say this. Okay, we got time, all right? But what I want to do is start, sort of frame, like, here are the big categories. When I think about what it means to be priests, right, which is what Jesus said we are. We are priests of the kingdom of God. What that means for us and our role in this time as a church. I want to unpack that in a few, few ways from Revelation 1. And the first and most important thing a priest does is they listen to God. Listen to him. And it's why, like, the central verse of this intro, um, in terms of what we are to do as Christians, is verse 3, where we're told, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear, who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. That the truly happy or blessed life is the life that is attentive to the words of God, to Scripture, to uh, to what God has revealed about himself in this world. And so the most important role we have as priests is to listen to God. And the best way to listen to God is what he said about himself in his scriptures. Especially the ones you disagree with. Wrestle with them. Approach them with a listening spirit because the presence of Jesus are in those scriptures. And so, you know, if you haven't signed up for our open here emails, if you don't have a daily reading of scripture, you can't be a priest if you're not listening to God. You can't be the presence of God to this world if you're not hearing who he is and what he's done. So sign up for open here. We have an email uh, distribution where we email out daily Bible readings or find your own. If you're a new Christian, you're like, I don't know that I want to read Revelation right now. That seems a little weird. Read the gospel of John, same author who lived and walked and, and, and went through life with with Jesus. So read, you have to engage the scriptures in order to hear and respond to him. But the other way you listen to his voice is, is you come here in this community every week. 
Not because I have some unique insight as preacher, but because we just believe when we, I, mean, I hope you picked up, a lot of the songs we sung were scripture. We sung scripture. We read a confession and assurance. We have God's word preached over us. We gather in community where we, we submit to an external authority and community that, that has some bearing on the way in which we live our lives. And it's not just that people are abandoning religious tradition altogether. It's that today a regular attender of church probably only goes 20 or 25 times a year. That's what it's like. If, if you're going to combat this narrative in life that life is about your personal happiness, which is the narrative you hear every day of your life, if you're not going to be in weekly church gathering worship, you have no chance of being more shaped by the way of Jesus than the way of the world. And I don't hear that as like a legalistic, like you need to go to church, right? I mean, to some extent, that's what I am doing. But, but what I mean is, is, is you are shaped every day in the commercials you watch, in the phone that you, you hold, in the rhythms and patterns of your life to put yourself at the center. And it's here each week in community, we say no to that. And we say yes to the centrality and reality of who Jesus is. So if you're going to be a priest... Revelation starts with saying you have to be attentive to Jesus. You have to listen to him, which is why we're, we're slowing down in these three chapters to listen to him. Listen to him speak to his church, to speak into where we are at and where we are headed. So that's one, listen to him. Secondly is to be a priest, you need to become a faithful witness. And so what John does here is he sort of, he unpacks through very powerful language an image of who Jesus is. And, and the beginning of that image, or, or part of that image, is in verse 5, where we're told three things about Jesus. He's the faithful witness, he's the firstborn of the dead, and he's the ruler of the kings of the earth. Now each of those images will come back later in the series. So I just want to focus on one now, which is that Jesus is the faithful witness. What does that mean? Why does John have that there? I mean, that's the first image of Jesus we get from John. He's the faithful witness. And what that, what, this is a very loaded term because in, in Greek, the word witness is martus. It's, it's the word we get martyr from. Right, so our English word martyr comes from this Greek word martus, which raises the question, well, how did the English word martyr, which means like to die for something, how do we get that from martus, which is a witness in Greek? Martus just meant witness in Greek. It didn't mean you, you, know, you were dying for anything. And the reason we, the word martyr means someone who dies for something in English is because of Revelation, the way Revelation uses this Greek word witness, martus. Because the reason Jesus is called the faithful witness is because it is an encouragement to the many people who will read this, this letter who were being persecuted, and they, un, they were beginning to understand following Jesus could mean they die. And that their witness would include death. The assumption of Revelation... And we'll go here in a few weeks. The assumption of Revelation is that if you take up life with Jesus, you are expecting to potentially die for him. No matter your culture, no matter your background, you are a witness to him. And that witness is the most important thing about you. And if it costs you your life, it's okay. This is the the picture of of the church in China that I and another number of others have been to a, a few times over the last few years. And I mentioned this a while back, but a few months ago they were notified by the state authorities that they, they must stop meeting or they will be arrested. And up until this point, nothing, there's been no arrests. It's been empty threats at this point. In other places in China, they've not been empty threats. Pastors that I've spent time with have known are in prison right now because of state persecution. And what that means is that these are brothers and sisters. Last night as we were going to sleep, they were driving into church unsure 
if when they got there, they'd be separated by their families and put in prison. They drove to church unsure if this was the morning the state was going to show up and arrest them, separate their families, and put them in prison. I just would ask, would you have come here today? There was even the remotest possibility that you might have been arrested. That my brothers and sisters in China, having spent time with them, have given me, have given me pause. That what Jesus am I following? Is it just one who will ensure my own vision of, of personal happiness? Or is it Jesus, this faithful witness, who gave everything to reveal God and to give us new life, to free us from our sins? So honestly, there are moments in China where I felt like you guys are in a different religion than I am. I don't know that any of what I'm experiencing here would translate back into the United States church context. The cost they were willing to pay, the commitment they had, the time they gave to one another. It's nothing like my experience of the American church. Jesus is our faithful witness, and his assumption is if you take up his way of life, your, your core mission in life is to be a priest, to represent the, the, the vision of the presence of God to this world, even unto death. So priests, they listen to God first. They are faithful witnesses. And thirdly and finally, they, and I've been hinting at this, they live for his presence. Like, I, I think we're at a time where the church is being confront, confronted with this question, which is what are we going to build our foundation on? As I think about moving into a new building where things get more stable, when we take a step forward, what are we going to build this thing on? The, the presence of Jesus, the authority of Jesus, or our own personal visions of happiness? And I know that raises a lot of questions, and that's what this series, this is what this series is about, is unpacking what that means. But I want to start, I wanted to start this morning by saying what I've felt, which is that most of us, including myself, the patterns and infrastructures of our lives are built around our own personal happiness and not the presence of Jesus. That we have endless time and calendar opportunities to pursue pleasure. Our Netflix queue, time killed on our smartphones, a new restaurant to try, another activity for our kids to engage in, another way to spend our money, a new vacation to go on. And even though not, we all know this isn't working, we keep abandoning the, the, the patterns, the rhythms of Jesus for our own, that we can find this utopian life, this good kingdom, without ordering and centering our life around the presence of Jesus. And our calendars and the way we've ordered our lives means we have no time to seek the presence of Jesus, no time for community, no time for service, no time for prayer. The rhythms that Jesus built his existence around and his church community around, rhythms that made the church radically different people are not the rhythms of our cultural day in our own church. The people who live in the presence of God are strange. Priests are strange. One thing, though, you know, if I ever became a Catholic, not planning on that, but one thing I like is that, you know, priests wear different garb in public, as if to say, I'm, I'm weird. I'm different. I've, I'm, I'm, like, if you want into the presence of God, come to, I'm, that's my job. Christians, our lives shouldn't mimic that. Not necessarily in specific dress, right? Don't go buy a priestly garb this week. That's not what I'm saying. But people should look at you and be like, you are strange. 
And if we simply build our lives around personal happiness, we are not strange. And it's why I don't, you know, I hope you hear me with compassion towards my friend because the same vision of Christianity he grew up with and ultimately abandoned, I feel like I've abandoned. For a Jesus that makes significant demands on me. For a Jesus who wants me not just to think about him a couple hours a week, but to reorient my entire life rhythm around his own. A Jesus who can tell me what to think, what to believe, where to go, what to say, and who to be. And the, the end of that, if we all embrace that vision of living in the presence of Jesus, the end result is this beautifully alternative community to the world that needs explanation, which is why the church exploded in growth to begin with. Romans had no idea why churches cared for the poor the way they did, why the men didn't sleep around on their wives, why they were so generous with their money toward, they had no categories for this. And I don't think the world looks at, at evangelical Christianity today. Those of us who hold on to the Bible and want to follow the way of Jesus, look at us and see us as any meaningfully different than the rest of the world. And it's because we bought a narrative that's not true. And we traded the gospel in for it. And so may we, may we take it back. Live in the presence of Jesus and be these radically different people. People like Susanna Wesley. She's a woman who lives her life in the presence of God, even though life dealt her enormously harsh blows. She had 19 children. Nine of them died in infancy. Her house was burned to the ground twice because her husband was a pastor, and that apparently when you were mad at the pastor, that's what you did then. Don't get any ideas. Church members also slit the, the, the udders of her cow that she owned to prevent her family from, being, from having that income source. Her husband got her family into debt, and she, he was thrown into debtor's prison, which left Susanna alone to care for her family and her many children. And in the midst of all of this chaos, she had a rule that she lived by. For every one hour she spent in entertainment, she spent an hour in prayer. Seeking the presence of God. And us with our smartphones and Netflix, I mean, just imagine that rule for us. And you ask, how did she do that with 10 children? Well, she had a rule with her kids. If you see my apron on my head, over my head, covered, I'm praying, leave me alone. And they did. And there in the midst of her kitchen, chaos of children became this, this conduit to the presence of God, this woman of prayer, who two of her sons, both would credit their great faith in her, would create a renewal of the Church of England, mass conversions, John and Charles Wesley. John, who led the revival which started Methodism, and Charles Wesley, who was the most famous hymn writer, maybe in history, we still sing his songs Today, all started because a woman of prayer sought to live by the presence of God, and her life was radically different. And this is what John, the, the revelator, had in mind when he said, we are a kingdom of priests to God and Father, to our God and Father. And the same Jesus that, that guided Susanna Wesley, that led her to create a renewal in the, the British church, is here and now. It's with us. And that is a compelling Vision, And this is what a priest is, someone who represents the presence of God to this world. Is that you? 
Is that us? Let's pray. Father, I think the place to start for me is to, to seek forgiveness of the, the ways I've ignored your presence and tried to do it myself. Lord, would you, would you create this church as a place where the one thing we live and die for is the presence of Jesus, who frees us from our sins, but doesn't just leave us there. He makes us, he makes us priests to you. What a compelling vision in life. God, help us to enter it, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.